All right, the kids have uh, left to go to Kids Connect, um, and today we are back in our series on the attributes of God, and so I want to throw up those, those two quotes that we kind of started the series with again today. Uh, the first one is by a guy named Dave Busby. He said, whatever your view of God is, it's too small, and uh, as we've kind of progressed through this series since the first week, I hope that this uh, the, the truth of that statement is, uh, is more and more evident as we consider this, this infinite God that is beyond our comprehension. We should be fully convinced by now that our finite minds, no matter how full they are with the knowledge of God, they're not going to be full enough to have a big enough view of God that isn't too small. Whatever our view of him is, it's too small. And so the purpose for this series, one of the goals that we have is to enlarge our understanding of him, even though when we get done, it's still going to be too small. The second quote is, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And then last week, we talked about Ephesians 5.1, which is where Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Because we are God's children, because he's adopted us into his family, we should be people that imitate him, that are like him. And so as we're talking about these attributes of God, these things that are things that are true about his being or his character, the reason why we're studying them, the reason why we're learning about them is because we want to be people who are imitating God. In order to imitate him, we need to know him. We need to know who he is. We need to know what he's like. We need to know things about him. And so as we're talking about these communicable attributes, which are attributes that are true about God that we participate in, the reason why we're doing this is because we want to imitate God. The reason why Tozer says... What comes into our minds when we think about God as the important thing about us is because that's going to define who it is that we're imitating. And so a question that we could ask ourselves is, who are we imitating? Who are we trying to be like? Whose image are we being more and more and more confirmed into? And it should be God's image. And so we want to understand more about who he is so that we can make sure that that's what we're being conformed into. And so today... We're continuing on talking about the the communicable attributes of God. And again, those are ones that we share in, that we participate in. This week, we're starting to talk about God's character. And so these, hopefully, are going to be easier things to apply for us than last week when we talked about God's invisibility and spirituality. These are things, uh, character traits God has. So we're going to talk about God's holiness, his jealousy, his love, his wrath. Next week, we're going to come back and talk about goodness, grace, mercy, patience, righteousness, and justice. Um, and as we talk about these attributes, especially today when we talk about things like holiness and love or love and wrath, uh, these attributes which, which, which might seem to contradict, I want to remind us again about God's simplicity. So there's the next picture right there. When we talked about God's simplicity a few weeks ago, we talked about how God's attributes, you know, his, his love, his righteousness, his justice, his holiness, his, uh, uh, his wrath, these attributes, they're not just kind of this collection that God has, and he's one sometimes and one another time, but instead, they are God's attributes that define him all of the time. And so they're like these lines, and the circle is God's being, and so he's all of the things he is all of the time. Because he's infinite, because he's perfect, because he never changes, he's always loving and always holy and always just and always righteous and always wrathful. And he's all of those things as much as he can be all of the time. 
And that's a good thing for us because that means we don't need to worry you know, about God being more wrathful than he is loving or more loving than he is holy. He is all that he is perfectly all of the time. So as we talk about these attributes, especially the ones that seem like they could be in tension or be in contradiction or kind of balance each other out or square off against each other, we need to know that that doesn't happen. God exists in unity. He exists in simplicity. And so we're going to see how all of these attributes work together. Um, and we're going to start with God's holiness. And as we go through these attributes, we're going to do the same thing we did last week. We're going to throw out a definition of them. We're going to see them in scripture. And then we're going to talk about how these things are communicated to us by God, how we share in them, how we participate in them, how we apply them. So God's holiness. Here's a definition for you. God is morally distinct from us and completely separated from sin. So holiness involves uh, kind of two ideas. It involves a, a relational and a, and a moral dimension. And so the first part of the definition kind of reflects the idea of God's alienness or his, his otherness. He is different than us, right? He is the creator and all of us are creations. Like there is never a point in our lives, never a point in our existence where we move from being creations to being something other than a creation. God is always the creator. We are always the creation. There is none like him. He is different than us. And in that way, he is holy. Uh, there's also the idea of moral purity. So it has this kind of alienness, otherness, distinction idea in holiness. And it also has moral purity. God is completely separate from sin. Uh, he has no sin. He's unstained by it. He's unaffected by it. Um, in scripture, God is repeatedly called the Holy One of Israel throughout the Old Testament. That's, that's a name that's given to him. We see that in 2 Kings 19.22. That happens three times in the Psalms, two times in Jeremiah, and 25 times in the book of Isaiah. God is just called, he's named the Holy One of Israel. In Psalm 99.9, the psalmist says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. Why should we exalt him? Why should we worship him? For the Lord our God is holy. His holiness is the cause. It's the reason for us to exalt him and worship him. And then as we've been going through Isaiah and Isaiah 6, we saw that the, the seraphim, the angels around the temple, they called out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When they repeat the word holy three times, they're saying he is the, the most holy. He is the holiest being there is. There is no one that will be or can be or could be holier than he is. Our God is holy. He is morally distinct from us and he is completely separated from sin. That's what it means to say that God is holy. So the question that we should ask is then what does it mean for us that God is holy? How is this communicated to us? Well, we're called to imitate God's holiness. Leviticus 19.2 says, God talking to the people, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God says his Holiness is a reason why his people should be holy. Now, some of you might be out there and you might be thinking, wait a second, this is, this is Old Testament. This is Leviticus. This is an Old Testament command. We're not under law. We're under grace. We don't, we don't have to do this because it's in Leviticus. Well, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So Peter picks up Leviticus 19.2 and says, guess what? Who cares it's in the Old Testament? It applies to you. Do it. Uh, And notice how he structures that uh, phrase. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be like who you were before, but instead remember that you're obedient children. You've been adopted into God's family. So Peter is doing something very similar to what Paul does in Ephesians 5.1, where he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. He's taking our adoption into the family of God and using that as a reason to give us the command to be like God. He says, be holy like your God is holy because you're one of his obedient children. Because you're his child, because you're called to obey, you should be like him. We're called to holiness. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So there we're called to pursue holiness and there we're also given the warning that if we don't have holiness, we're not going to see the Lord. We're not going to endure in our faith if we're not pursuing holiness. So we are called to be holy like God is holy. But I want us to recognize that there's a difference between our holiness and God's holiness. Um, God, as I said, is, is, is distinct from us, right? He's alien. He's, he's other. We will never be like him. Um, and so when the word holy is applied to us, it, it kind of changes a little bit, um, when it's applied to kind of normal, common things, it takes on a slightly different meaning than it does when it's applied to God. So for example, in Exodus 28 and 29, you could open up your Bibles and you could read about these, these, these fancy schmancy outfits that Aaron and his sons get uh, so they can minister in the tabernacle. They get these, you know, these fancy clothes with these jewels all over them and gold on them. And uh, then God dedicates those outfits uh, for service in the temple. And he says that those outfits are holy. But in, in some ways, those are just like any other clothes. Sure, they're, they're, they're nicer. You know, people don't normally walk around wearing jewels and gold all over their clothing. But they're just, they're just common things. The reason that they are holy, the reason that they are different from any other clothes that Aaron or his sons have is because God said that those things were holy. And what he meant was that they were set apart for a specific purpose. They were set apart for the worship of God in the tabernacle. That's what made them holy. And in a similar way, that's what happens to us. When God calls us in Christ, he looks at us and he says, in Christ, you are holy. But the reality is that we're not different from anyone else. There isn't anything about the people that trust in Christ that makes them better or more worthy to be called holy than other people, right? We are not perfect. We don't all perfectly obey God all of the time. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We all are imperfect. But God, when he calls us in Christ, he calls us holy. He sets us apart for a specific purpose, to obey him and worship him and serve him. So we're like those garments that aren't any different than any other garments until God comes along and he says, guess what? These are holy. These are different. Um, and for us, the New Testament talks about our holiness in three major ways. 
Um, it, it often uses the word sanctify or, or sanctification to talk about this, this process by which we become holy. And it, and it says three different things. The first thing it says is that it says you are holy. You, you have been sanctified. It also says that you are being made holy or you are being sanctified. And the third thing that it says is that you will be sanctified or you will be made holy. So you, you have been sanctified. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and this is what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, past tense, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So he's just addressing the letter. And as he's addressing the letter, he refers to the Corinthians and he says that they are those who are sanctified. Past tense. He does it again later in the same letter, 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you. you. You were like them, but you were washed in the past. You were sanctified in the past. You were justified in the past in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In both of these passages, Paul describes the Corinthian sanctification, their being made holy, as if it's something that's already happened to them. They have been sanctified. God, when he saved them in Christ, looked at them like he looked at those garments that Aaron and his sons made and said, you are holy. In Christ, they have that standing before God. But the New Testament also says we're being made holy. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering, he, that's, that's Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there's a sense in which when we trust in Christ, we are made holy. We receive that standing before God. But there's also a way in which we are becoming holy. We're becoming more and more and more and more progressively holy as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our obedience, as we grow in the grace that he pours out on us through the cross. And so holiness is something that has happened to us, and it's something that is happening to us. And finally, it's something that will happen to us. The New Testament tells us that this process of sanctification, this process of being made holy, is going to be brought to an end. We're going to be made holy, fully and finally. Hebrews 12, 23 tells us that we'll be made perfect in the end. And then this is what Revelation 21, 27 says. It says, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, John here in the book of Revelation is talking about the heavenly city. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And he's saying that there's not going to be anything unclean. You could also say unholy in this place. God is going to remove everything that is unholy from his creation. That means he's also going to remove everything that is unholy in us. We have been made holy. We are being made holy and we will be fully and finally made holy. We get to share in God's holiness. And that is a good and a gracious thing because that means one day we're not going to struggle with sin anymore. That means one day the thing that he said about us at the beginning is actually going to be true of us in reality. We get to share in his holiness. The next attribute that we're talking about today is jealousy. So before we talk about jealousy, um, 
I want to I kind of explain a little bit about it because normally when we think of jealousy, we think of it as if it's a bad thing. And so when we begin to talk about God being a jealous God and that begin being a good thing, it can be confusing. And so uh, with the idea of jealousy, what it really is at its root is it's a desire to protect or, or guard your own honor or, or worth or, or position. And so... Um, if your neighbor gets like a new house or a new car or a new job, you might look at them and think, that's, that's not fair. I, I want that. The reason why is because you think you're worth more than they are. You're trying to protect your own sense of self-worth by saying, I should have a new house. I should have a new job. I should have a new car because I'm better than they are. If they deserve that, so do I. Or in the context of relationships, when you know maybe you're jealous of the affection that someone else is getting, you're jealous of it because you think that you deserve to have that affection. That belongs to you, not to them. They aren't what, worth what you're worth. They don't have the honor that you have. They don't have the self-image that you have. And so that shouldn't be given to someone else. Instead, it should be given to you. The problem with that, for us, the reason why jealousy is bad for us, is because we're all worth the same thing which is nothing. We're all in the same boat. We're all human beings created in God's image. So when our neighbor gets a new house or a new car or a new job, we should say that's awesome because all that we deserve is death. Right? We rebelled against a holy and just God and yet we still get to live in his creation. We should wake up every morning thankful for that And if we get anything else that day, it's bonus. So our neighbor gets a new car, our neighbor gets a good house. We say, that's amazing. Thank God for that. Hopefully I'll get that too, but at least he hasn't killed me yet. Jealousy is a good thing for God because God should uphold his own honor. He should uphold his own name. He should uphold his own worth because he is the only one who is infinitely honorable and infinitely worthy. And so there's no one that deserves anything that he deserves because no one can compete with him. No one will ever ever have as much honor or glory or worth as God has. And so God has to be jealous. He has to protect his own honor. He has to protect his own name because no one else else is as worthy as he is. And so this is why in the Ten Commandments he tells us, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Or Deuteronomy 4, 24, he says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. This is why scripture tells us that God is jealous. And most often when it tells us that, it tells us that in a place where God is is making a command against worshiping idols. He's saying don't worship and serve them because they're not worthy. Instead, God is jealous. God protects his own honor. He's the only one who's worthy of worship and service and obedience. Nothing else, no one else is. God is jealous because he prohibits the worship of false gods. And so how is this communicable to us, right? Should we become jealous people um, in a good way somehow? You know, maybe, maybe there is a way in which we could be jealous for other people. Like if we see people who aren't treated with the worth they deserve as human beings created in God's image, that should bother us. That should affect us. We should defend the honor they should have as human beings created in God's image. 
Uh, but I think more importantly, what it should do, it should cause us to be jealous for God's name, for his honor. When we see people worship false gods, it should bother us, whether we're talking about actual literal idols in other religions or whether we're talking about worshiping the idols of, of sex and fame and power or whatever else we want to include in that group. Um, it should bother us when we see people worship false gods. Not just because God is the only one who's infinitely worthy and infinitely deserving of their worship and praise, but it should bother us because we know the true God and we know that what they're doing is false and useless. Um, to give you a, an incredibly superficial example, the other night, Jen and I were watching the movie Bend It Like Beckham, which, is, which holds up. Um, but in the movie, the family is, is a Sikh family. And so they have a painting on their wall, which is a painting of, of the guru. He's one of the first gurus of the Sikh religion, which is essentially God for them. And like throughout the movie, they offer praise and prayer to this painting that's hanging on their wall in their living room. There's a part where their daughter is, you know, maybe going to go off to America and they, they ask the painting, like, should we do this? Should we not? Can you bless this? And I, and I, I saw that and I just, but that's that's crazy. That's that's insane. I can't imagine being in a situation in which I'm going to entrust the future of my daughter to a painting that hangs above my fireplace. That should bother us when we see things like that happening. Not just for that family who's hoping and trusting in nothing, but because those people are asking a painting for the wisdom that only God has. We should be jealous for God's honor. We should participate in his jealousy for himself. The next attribute is a happier one. It's love. God eternally gives of himself to others. Here, love is is self-giving for the sake of others. Um, I think that's how we see love defined in Scripture uh, from God's perspective, and I think that's how we should define it as humans. So in Scripture, 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Quite simply, it's one of his attributes. And you probably notice the word eternally in that definition. God eternally gives of himself to others. And you might think, wait a second. We didn't get here until like Genesis 2. So how could God eternally love when he didn't have us to love? If we're not here, these lovely, wonderful people for God to pour out his affection on, how could God be loving eternally? Well, he loved himself because himself is better than us. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. This is Jesus praying to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the Father loved the Son before Genesis 1, before the world was made. There was love between the members of the Trinity. See the same thing in John fourteen thirty one. 31. Uh, but I do, Jesus says, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Father, and the Spirit loves the Son. There is perfect love existing eternally between the members of the Trinity. Yet, God also loves us. And the New Testament tells us that the best picture of God's love is the cross. First John 4.10 in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God gave of himself sacrificially for us. And that's how we know what love is. Because he sent his son to die for us. So how is that communicable to us? Right? How do we love others in that way? Um, I think that we are supposed to love like God does. First of all, we love God because he loves himself. And we also love others. This is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew. Uh, he says to this person who asks him, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus here is saying that the, the, the Old Testament essentially can be summed up in two things. Love God and love others. And this is how we love others. Picking up, we read John, 1 John 4.10 earlier. This is what comes after it. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, right, because God has loved us, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about these communicable attributes. We're supposed to be God's representatives in the world. And the way we represent his love is by loving like he loves. We should be the most self-giving people there are because we know how much has been given for us. Because he died for us, we know what love is, so let us be willing to die for others. We should give all of ourselves, all of the time, for everyone. We love God and we love others. That's how we love like God loves. That's how we imitate him as his beloved children. The last attribute today is wrath. The definition here is that God intensely hates all sin. And throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath is is made pretty clear. Here's a passage from, from Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is immediately after uh, the Passover and Exodus, nearly. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God intensely hates all sin. His people worship idols and his wrath burns hot against them. If we would continue on in that passage, we would see Moses intervened, um, but we're talking about wrath right now. God's wrath uh, isn't just an Old Testament thing, though. I think sometimes we like to think that it is, as if when we get to Matthew, there's this shift where kind of wrath goes away and love takes over. Um, But listen to John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whomever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So first of all, notice how this is just a a handful of verses after John 3.16. 
the one that gets thrown around all the time because God is, is so loving. And notice how it's even implied here, right? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's a reference back to John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But if you don't believe in the Son, if you're not covered by his blood, then uh, you will not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. God intensely hates all sin. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God intensely hates all sin all of the time, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament and today. Now, that's probably something we have a hard time celebrating. Right? Right? Because if God intensely hates all sin, that means he hates things that I do. He hates things that you do. Because we still sin, right? You guys should be nodding more. It's it's, it's hard to think about the God of the universe who we want to picture more often as more loving, especially for us, maybe not for other people, but especially for us. We want him to be a God who loves us and delights in us all the time. And it's hard to think about God hating our sin. It's hard to think about him as this God in John uh, 3.36 who is going to pour out his wrath on those who don't believe in the Son. Like, I, I don't want to think, I don't want to dwell on the fact that I have people that I love and I care about who are under the wrath of God. And so when we begin to think about how, how, can, how can we worship, how can we praise God for his wrath, how can we thank him for his wrath, I think it's helpful for us to ask a different question. And that question is, what would God be like if he did not intensely hate all sin? Because really we're, we're left with maybe three options. Um, either he delights in sin, or he's just kind of ambivalent towards it, you know. Or maybe he likes some sin and, and doesn't like some sin. Like maybe, maybe he likes my sin, but doesn't like your sin. But that's not who God is. Because the reality is, if God is any of those things, if he does not intensely hate all sin, then he is not just. He is not righteous. He is not holy. He is not the God of the Bible. And so we should absolutely thank God that he does intensely hate all sin because sin is evil. And evil shouldn't exist. We want a God who wants those things gone from this world. We want a God who wants those things gone from us. We need a God who's like that. We should be thankful that God hates sin. And at the same time, we should be thankful that even though he intensely hates all sin, he came up with a way to move us from being children of wrath, like Paul calls us in Ephesians 2, to being adopted into his family. So how did he do that? Did he just change his mind? Did he just not be wrathful? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 3, Romans 3, 23 through 25, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Uh, Romans 3, uh, really really all of Romans is, is packed with the theological richness of the gospel, but we can't, we can't get into all of that now. Instead, I want us to focus on this, this one phrase. Uh, whom God, that's, that's referring to Jesus, put forward as a propitiation by his blood. This is how... God moved us from being children of wrath to being beloved children. This is, this is what happened. This is what Jesus did for us. In order to understand it, we need to understand the word propitiation. And that's a word we don't use. So here's a story. When I was in uh, kindergarten and first grade, we lived out in the country outside of Jeff City. And we had these big labs, a yellow one and a black one. And they lived in these cages outside. They were, they were big cages. They weren't like bad cages. Um, and my parents did youth work at our church. And there were these high school kids who thought it would be really funny to come out and teepee the house of the youth workers. So they came out one night uh, to teepee our house. And when they got there, the dogs started barking because that's what dogs do when someone comes on your property in the middle of the night. So my dad woke up, and he went out, and he busted them. And then they came back. And this time they came back with boxes of dog biscuits. And they put one of the kids at the cage, passing out dog biscuits to the dogs, while everybody else teepeed the house. And the dogs didn't bark, and my dad didn't wake up until the next morning when the house was covered in toilet paper. That dog biscuit transfer is like propitiation. (laughs) It is an appeasement of wrath. It makes the wrath go away. It ends it. By satisfying it. Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood, if you've read the Gospels or heard the Gospel, you know as a reference to the cross. What Paul is saying is that on the cross, when Jesus died, when he shed his blood for us and for our sins, he was a propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. What that means is that he took on God's intense hate of us and our sin and paid it. And that is a good and gracious thing for us. That's the only way we move from children of wrath to beloved children is because Jesus took the wrath that God had against us. And so we should absolutely praise God for being a wrathful God. Because if he doesn't hate sin, then our sin isn't done away with. But we should also praise God for being a gracious and merciful God and that he sent us a redeemer who could pay the wrath that we were supposed to pay. And so... As we take the Lord's Supper today, his wrath isn't something that we should, I don't know, dislike or or think of as some part of God that is distasteful or unpleasant to us. But we should remind ourselves that the cup, which represents his blood, which was shed for us as a propitiation for our sins, and his body, which was broken for us, as a propitiation for our our sins, means that God's wrath against us is paid for. God doesn't 
intensely hate our sins because Christ paid for them on the cross. But as John 3, 36 told us, that's only for those who've believed in him. So if you're here today and you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I would encourage you to celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Don't walk up there like we normally do where we're all like, oh, I need to be serious and somber and, you know, not bump into anyone in line. Like, be happy. You know, don't, don't be flippant. Don't make light of his sacrifice. But we should celebrate the fact that our sins have been put away, that we have been forgiven. But if you haven't trusted in Christ, you need to remember that you are still under the wrath of God, that you, John says, will not see eternal life. There is a God who is infinitely loving. But he's also infinitely wrathful. But he sent his son to provide a way for that wrath to be turned away from you. So if that's you today, I would encourage you to trust in Christ. And if you don't know what that looks like or what that means, I'm sure there's a dozen people here today who would love to talk to you about that. I'd be more than happy to, uh, or I can point you to someone else. So I'm going to pray. Reed is going to come and he's going to play some music. I would encourage you to take some time to prepare your hearts. And then whenever you're ready, come forward and take the Lord's Supper. And, and don't be afraid to, you know, give someone else a hug or, or be excited about the fact that Jesus paid your penalty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. And that you protect and uphold your own honor. That you eternally give of yourself to others. That you sent your Son to bear the wrath that we should have borne. And that you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of his death, we can move from being children of wrath to being your beloved children. I pray that you would help us to praise and worship and marvel at the God that you are and what you've done for us. And then as your beloved children, that we would imitate you. That we would strive for holiness and we would love well. That we would be jealous for your name and your honor. And that we would begin to hate our sin like you do. Pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, that you would send your spirit to help us truly praise you for the fact that Christ has paid the wrath.